for a lot of years, Kelly served as like the editor of my sermons to read through them to make sure everything made sense because sometimes what makes sense in your head doesn't come out typed making sense. And so I'd have her read through it and make sure that it was right and things were in the proper usage. And one of the things that she would say every so often was she would say, Ooh, that's a really hard message. Be sure to tell the people you love them before you preach and that God loves them too. So before we get started today, I want to tell you that I love you and God loves you too. And in fact, it is, I'm sorry, this is, there's an uneven spot up here and it wobbles. Um, it, it is my love for you that motivates me to preach what I'm preaching. I mean, we are going through a book of the Bible. We are just at this place. But at the same time, there is a burden that I feel for the people of this church and our community. A love that I have for those that would call this their church home. And that love and that burden, it compels me. To preach the word clearly and accurately and not try to soften it up, not try to sugarcoat it or, or level it out. So today as I preach, I do pray that you hear my heart of love for you, even though the message at times I believe it will come across as hard and, and harsh, although I hope not harsh. We're, we're talking about waking up. Uh, and we all know that sleeping when you're supposed to be awake is dangerous. I remember in the army, I went to a school that kept us up for about 36 or 40 hours. And when they finally let us go, I went to take a shower. And I fell asleep in the shower. And I woke up in the floor with a big knot on my head with my roommate banging on the door asking me what had happened because I had torn the, the curtain down. Uh, it was it's dangerous to fall asleep when you're supposed to be awake taking a shower. Uh, it can also be deadly. Uh, how many car accidents happen each year? Because people fall asleep driving. I mean, why is there a warning label on cough medicine saying, don't operate heavy machinery when you do this because it's going to make you drowsy and it'll slow your reflexes. Being asleep when you're supposed to be awake is dangerous. It can even be deadly. And this is also true spiritually speaking. But as believers in Jesus Christ, we are supposed to be awake and alert to the world around us, what is going on, how things are happening. And when we're awake, there's a certain way that we live. There are certain things that we do. And yet the reality is that for much of the church, particularly the American church, we have fallen asleep. Today in Ephesians 5, Paul issues a warning for us, a call for us to wake up. So open your Bible to Ephesians 1. We're going to look at the first 14 verses. And when you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. That should be on page 897 in your pew Bible, if you have one of those. Ephesians 5 and 1, it says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given Himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice for God, a sweet-smelling Savior. But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather giving of thanks. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God on the children of disobedience. Be not ye therefore partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. 
For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. The title of the message this morning is, Wake Up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. We come this morning with a desire to learn from your word, to hear what you have for us, to wake us up. If we need to be woken up today, God. Father, as we look at this passage, it is going to be challenging at times, contrary to our culture all throughout. And God, our desperate need is for you to conquer our sinful nature that will try to push the word back, try to tell us there's an excuse or a reason why we don't have to conform to what you have said there. But God, let your spirit conquer that in us today. Kill our sinful nature that we would be fully devoted followers of Jesus, filled with your spirit walking and living in the way that you would have us to live. Fill me with your spirit this morning. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me not to be a hindrance in any way to what you won't said. Have your way in all things. We ask in the mighty name of Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we, we looked at this passage about a month ago before we went to Bulgaria. Uh, and we're finishing it up tonight or today. So I want to kind of review the basis of it. Right. So chapter 5 starts with... Therefore, be ye therefore, which connects us back to Ephesians 4.32. And be ye kind, tender-hearted to one another, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. So all that Paul was talking about, everything we're going to look at this morning, in really in all of Ephesians 5, but particularly for today, it is based upon the fact God has forgiven us for Christ's sake. Right, so this is not a command for unbelievers. This is a command for believers because God has forgiven us because of what Christ has done. This is how we are supposed to live. Now, specifically, he says in verse one, we are to be followers of God. Now, the idea of a follower of God in, in this land, in this particular word, it carries with it the idea of following a person's example completely or or imitating them. So the picture is that since God has forgiven us because of Jesus, we are to imitate God and live and walk in a certain way. He, just to make sure we understand the reasoning behind it, he also says, as dear children. Right? As a child imitates his parents, we are to imitate our father. But it's not just the, the picture of a child imitating their parent. It is a reminder that we have been adopted as the children of God. And since God has adopted us as His children, we are to live in a certain way. So we are to do all of the things that Paul talks about in this passage. Because God has forgiven us and because God has adopted us as His dear children. Now, look at the warning in verse 14. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. So, the church, disciples of Jesus, we are the children of God, and we are to imitate God in how we live and how we act and our attitudes and all these things. And yet, the picture is that the church has fallen asleep. Those who are meant to be imitating God are now asleep. They've laid their heads in the lap of the world. And they are now living in darkness as though they did not know Jesus. They're being carried along with the attitudes and actions of an unbelieving world. And they need to wake up and let the light and the life of Christ flow through them again. 
Now, if this isn't a picture of what's going on in the modern church, particularly the American church, I don't know what is. Listen to this quote by a man named Elton Trueblood I read this week. Perhaps the single greatest weakness of contemporary Christianity or the contemporary Christian church is that millions of supposed members are not really involved at all. And what is worse, they do not think it's strange they are not involved. As soon as we recognize Christ's intention to make His church a militant company, we understand at once that the conventional arrangement cannot suffice. There is no real chance of victory in a campaign if 90% of the soldiers are untrained and uninvolved. That is exactly where we stand now. Elton Trueblood wrote that in 1979. And it was true then, and if possible it is more true now. The state of the modern American church shows many, many, many professing believers do not take their relationship with Jesus seriously. No, they wouldn't say that. Nobody would say that. But they show it. They show it by their lack of prayer. They just don't pray because they don't need God to do anything in their lives. They show it by their lack of personal Bible study. They're not in the Word. They're not letting God speak to them. They show it by their lack of gathering with other believers to worship God. The idea that the church is an optional thing for a believer that was just me and Jesus, that is a a modern American invention that didn't exist in the Bible. They show it by lack of holiness in their lives. Statistics continually show us that many American Christians, perhaps half or more, do not live morally different lives than the unbelieving world around them. They have the same morals, the same values, the same priorities, the same attitudes. They talk the same way. They live the same way. They do the same things. They show it by a lack of concern about sin. Sin is seen as sinful indulgence. Something you shouldn't do, but you're probably going to, and maybe you'll feel a little bit bad about it later, but oh well, it's so good. How could you not do it right now? And we see the lack of taking it seriously but just a general flippancy about spiritual and eternal things. The commonness of this lack of seriousness about spiritual things, it is a giant flashing neon sign screaming that the church is asleep and needs to wake up. And in light of this passage, particularly the church must wake up to imitate God by walking in love, holiness, hatred of sin, and bold proclamation of truth. The church must wake up to imitate God by walking in love, holiness, hatred of sin, and bold proclamation of truth. Now we talked about two of these last time, so I'm going to hit them quickly just to remind you if you weren't here, and then we'll move on with the last two for today. So first we have to wake up to love like Jesus. Look at verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also hath loved us and hath given Himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling Savior. We're to wake up to love like Jesus. This love is meant to be seen in our actions, our attitudes, our words. 
and in all parts of our lives. Now, since we are to love as Jesus loved, we are to love in a sacrificial way. Because that's what Jesus did for us. That's what he's talking about. He offered himself for us. We're to have a kind of love that motivates us to give of ourselves, to sacrifice in our life for those that we love. Love costs us something. That's what Jesus did. Right? He loved us and so He gave His life that we might be saved and we are to imitate that in our lives. We are to wake up and love in that way. And when we love in a sacrificial way, it is a sweet smelling savor unto God. And what that basically means is that God is pleased. Every time in love we sacrifice for another, God is pleased. But the converse is also true. Every time we are selfish and refuse to sacrifice for another, God is not pleased. We're to wake up and we're to love like Jesus. We're to wake up to a life of holiness. Now, look at Paul's exact words in verse 3 and 4. But fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting, which are not convenient, but rather the giving of thanks. Now, those were common sins in their day, common sins in our day. But notice his wording. Let these things not be once named among you as becometh saints. You know what it means? Not be once named among you? It means that anybody in the world should be able to go to every person you know and talk to them and ask, in Stacy's life, is there fornication, uncleanness, covetousness, filthiness, foolish talking, and jesting? Are those things, do you see them in Him? And not one person in my life should be able to say, yes, those things are there. But it's not just my life, it's your life too. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there should not be one person in your life that can connect you to living this way currently. Now, what we were before we were saved, that's the past, it's under the blood, it's gone. But it's not meant to be a part of our lives now. should not even be once named among us. There should not even be one person that we're a part of these things with. Why? Why do we take holiness this seriously? Because one, we, we are saints. We have been changed. Right? Jesus saved us. He changed us. Look at verse 8. For we were sometimes darkness, but now our light in the Lord walk as dear children. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Right? Now, I love the wording here. At once we were darkness. Not we walked in darkness. We were darkness. The natural state of us apart from Christ is that we were darkness. And so we walked and we lived as those who were in darkness. And then something happened. Jesus intervened in our life. God saved us through His grace. And in that moment the life and the light of Christ flowed into us. And we see in verse 9... That there is meant to be an, an, a legitimate change that flows out for the fruit of the Spirit since we've been saved. is meant to flow out of us in goodness and righteousness. You see, coming to Jesus, it does change our eternal destiny. But it changes more than our eternal destiny. It changes us on a practical day-by-day basis. So we, we are to be holy and live a life of holiness because Jesus has saved us from the power and slavery and the life of sin. 
also we're to live a life of holiness because we are His dear children. We live in ways that were not pleasing to God before we knew Him. And then God intervened and saved us and adopted us. And that should motivate us to live in a way consistent with the character of the God who has saved us. Those who have faith in Jesus have been adopted as God's children, been transformed by His Spirit and must live in holiness. This is meant to be the way we live our lives on the regular, not on the occasion. The church must wake up to imitate God by walking in love, holiness, hatred of sin, and bold proclamation of truth. Those are the two we covered. Here's the first one for this week. Wake up to hatred of sin. Something I love about Scripture is the living quality. The Bible says it is living and active. So it's relevant to our lives today, even though it was written thousands of years ago. At the time Paul wrote this passage, there were a group of false teachers who taught sin didn't matter. According to them, once you were saved, you could live however you wanted, and God did not care. Paul addresses that. Notice in verse 5. Continuing on the thought of verse 4, these things should not be named once among you. For this ye know, that no whoremonger, nor unclean person, nor covetous man who is an idolater, hath any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no man deceive you with vain words. For because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children. Disobedience. Paul says, do not be fooled by those who teach such things. And that idea is just as common in our day as it was then. The things that Paul listed here are, are just as common in our day as they were then. Whoremonger is not a term we use, but it basically just refers to a, a sexually immoral person. Right? It's just a fornicator, someone who sleeps around. Uh, uncleanness typically referred to any sort of moral impurity. It could be an attitude, an action. It could be through speech. It could be involved, involved in sexual things. Uh, a covetous person, which is a, a consuming desire for more, one that is never satisfied. No matter how much you get, you always want just a little bit more. Now, in, in our day, we're told that these things are fine. I mean, these, really, think about the things on here. Nothing on, on this list is seen as bad in our culture at all. Sexual immorality, that's, I mean, people in the church are the only ones who even use sexual and immorality in the same sentence. Covetousness, I mean, that's just having a vision for your future. Uh, uncleanness, I mean, that, that's just how you talk and how you live, and that's just the common way that people are. And we're constantly told the, the morals and the ideas of Scripture are outdated and, and really don't apply to us any longer. And to that, God says, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by those who seek to excuse these things. And He gives us two reasons. First, don't be fooled because those who, who live in such ways, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. They, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Secondly, because of these things, the Wrath cometh the wrath of God upon the children. Disobedience. So why should we not listen to those who say don't take sin seriously, just excuse it? Because when we live in a life of sin, it shows we have no part in the kingdom of God and of Christ. 
When we live a life of sin, we are children of disobedience and the wrath of God will come upon us. Now, let me ask you a question. Think about what Scripture says here. Is there any way that you can imagine what God means? Is that if you live in sin, you go to heaven, but you lose rewards. Is there any way that what's being said here is, if you sin... You can still make it to heaven. If you live a life of rebellion against God and you do your will instead of His, you're going to make it. It'll be okay in the end. Now think about the specific wording. No part in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Upon them come the wrath of God. Is there any way those two statements could be taken to mean those who live in sin go to heaven when they die? No, there is not. And so don't be deceived into thinking anything differently. Don't be deceived for yourself into thinking otherwise. If you're here today and you live in sin, do not be deceived into thinking you're going to go to heaven because you're not. According to Scripture, you have no part In the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's not me being judgmental. That's just what the Bible says. According to Scripture, the wrath of God will come upon you. Don't be deceived into thinking otherwise. Don't be deceived for those that you love to thinking otherwise. We all want to think the best people we love and care about who don't live for Jesus, who live in sin. We want to make excuses. We want to say this or we want to say that. Don't be deceived. For those who live in sin have no part in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Those who live in sin will face the severe wrath of God. It will come upon them. Don't be deceived into thinking otherwise. Now I've come to understand that there are various kinds of of deception in our world. Right? There is what I would call false teaching deception. That's what was going on in Paul's day. And false teaching deception says the Bible doesn't mean what it says. That false teaching abounds in our day. You take any sin listed in this passage or the works of the flesh from Galatians 5 or the works of unrighteousness from 1 Corinthians 6 and you Google, is, is this a sin? And, and I promise you, you're going to find hundreds, thousands of articles written about why those things are not sin. The church has always misunderstood that they were never sin. Why the world has changed. Revelation is different. On and on and on it will go. Many of their arguments will sound scholarly and the people who write them will have all sorts of letters following their name. They will teach at Christian colleges. They will be professors. They will be doctor this and doctor that. And so it's going to sound really good. The problem is that no scholar, no professor, no archaeologist makes the rules. God does. God alone has the right to determine what is sin and what is not. And once God has spoken about something being sin, it it is sin. No matter what anyone says, what anyone writes, what any culture believes, there is no higher court than God that can be appealed to to overturn His judgment, His Decision. Do not be deceived with the empty words of those who say God's wrath will not come on the children of disobedience because it assuredly 
will. False teaching deception, but there's also the exception deception. That's what I call it. The exception deception says I'm the exception to the rule. Yes, that's true for others, but it's not true for me. Now, problem is, most of us tend to think we are the exception to the rule. And I can, I can prove it, I think. Let's say you're driving down the highway. And somebody flies past you. And you think, what an idiot. I hope they get a ticket. And if you see them get pulled over and get a ticket, in your mind you probably think, that's what they deserve. They were driving like a maniac. But then if we're driving down the highway, we're flying down, we get pulled over, we don't say, what an idiot. I'm getting what I deserve. What we say is, aren't there real criminals that these people could be chasing rather than harassing me? I've got places to be. We think we're the exception to the rule. And we bring that mindset to the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, whoremonger, that's terrible. What about, but you sleep with all these people. Oh, well, you don't understand. Here's why it's okay for me. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for by and large, terrible, terrible. But here's why it's not covetousness for me. No, no, no. Not covetousness. No, it's not that. The reality is God is not going to look at, at my life. And he's not going to say, eh, well, I mean, it's just, it's just how Stacy is. Make an exception for him. I know I said no whoremongers and no covetousness and no unclean, but you, know, you just don't know how Stacy was raised. You just don't know what his parents were like. You, you don't know the struggles he has. I'm going to make an exception for him. God won't make an exception for me and God won't make an exception for you. Don't be deceived into thinking that God will make an exception for you because he won't those who live in sin they have no part in his kingdom and the wrath of God will come upon them and there are no exceptions to that rule so there's the false teaching deception the exception deception and then one that's also very common the replacement deception the replacement deception says my good deeds Outweigh my bad deeds. We are all experts at justifying our actions. We can do anything that's wrong and sinful. And we can find a way to justify it. And one of the greatest ways that we justify our sin is by pointing out all of the the good things that we do in another area. Yes, I I do this, and that's not right. I shouldn't do it. You're right. I shouldn't do it. But I went to church, and I was baptized, and I I, I gave money, and I helped my neighbor, and I invited that one person to church. Look at all of these good things that I've done. And, And this one thing, I mean, how bad can this one thing be in comparison to all of these good things? But it doesn't work that way. I mean, you think about King Saul. God said, go kill the Amalekites. All of them. And if you know the story, he he killed almost all of them. God, he saved the king, Agag, alive. And he was supposed to kill all of the animals, but he kept the best of the flocks. And yet what God said was that, that that disobedience was like witchcraft in God's eyes. That that 
partial obedience, it was complete disobedience. Because that's what he did. He, he obeyed, and he, dis, he disobeyed, but he said, yes, I kept King Agag alive, but look at all of this other stuff I did to get here. Okay, yes, I, I kept these alive, but here's the reason, and here's what I'm going to do with it. And to which God said, the kingdom is taken from you. God did not accept his replacement. It was deception. Do not think that our good deeds, however we define good deeds, that as long as they are greater than our bad deeds, however we define our bad deeds, are going to make up for a life of sin because they won't. Those who live in sin have no part in the kingdom of God and the wrath of God will eventually come upon them. Do not be deceived. Those who live in sinful rebellion against God have no part in the kingdom of God. Now, we are, I mean, we, we, Paul hammers this. They have, they have, they don't have any inheritance, right? None. And the wrath, because of these things, these sins, the wrath of God, it does come on them. I mean, th- this is absolute. This isn't like this will probably happen. Now, if you live in sin, you probably aren't part of the kingdom of God, and it's possible the wrath of God will come upon you. That's not what Paul says. You have no part, and the wrath of God will come upon you. This is certain, not possible. Now, this world, it minimizes sin, and it mocks the idea of the judgment of God. The sad fact is many Christians today have adopted this mindset but make no mistake, this is not a sign of greater enlightenment. This is not a sign of greater revelation. This is not a sign of greater Christ-likeness. This is a sign that those who have adopted this mindset have fallen asleep and desperately need to wake up. We cannot minimize sin. Sin is deadly. It is eternally deadly. And we cannot minimize it and we cannot listen to those who would deceive us into believing it's no big deal. We must hate sin. Because sin destroys souls. And until we hate it, because make no mistake, God hates sin. Do do a search. Do a search. Six things God hates. Yea, seven are an abomination of thee. I hate these actions, saith the Lord. Make no mistake, God is not okay with sin. God hates sin because of the destruction it brings into lives and souls the people He has created and wants to redeem. So the church has to wake up and imitate God by walking in love, holiness, hatred of sin, And bold proclamation of truth. That brings us to the last one. Wake up to bold proclamation. Look at verse 10. Proving what is acceptable to the Lord. Now the idea of proving is to discern or to find out or to search until we know. And what we're to... To discern, find out, or search till we know is what is acceptable to the Lord. And that essentially means what is pleasing to God. Uh, it would be easy to say we're to search 
to find out what God's will is. Really kind of a way to say it. What God's will is and what pleases Him. As I was studying that, there are at least two implications of our needing to prove what is acceptable to the Lord. The first is, we don't naturally know what God's will is. In our natural state, we don't know what is acceptable to the Lord. You think about what Scripture says. Scripture says that God's ways are higher than our ways. In fact, the Scripture says that God's way as high as the heavens are above the earth is how high God's ways are than our ways and His thoughts are above our hearts. If this is true, and it is, what are the chances that just on, the, on a natural way we're going to know what is acceptable to God? We're just going to instinctively know. None. So what do we do if we want to know the will and the want and the mind of God? Prove it. We have to search it. And we search. We find through prayer, through fasting, through scripture, through the counsel of mature, spirit filled believers. We won't find God's will on Dr. Phil. We won't find God's will on Oprah. We won't find God's will by asking our unbelieving friends or family. We won't find God's will by following our hearts. We won't find God's will by looking at culture and what culture says is acceptable. If we want to find God's will, we have to seek it through prayer. Talking to God. Scripture. Letting God talk to us. Fasting. Saying, God, I need you more than I need anything else. And the counsel of wise Godly, spirit-filled, mature believers because we always need each other. That's how we prove what is acceptable to the Lord. Now the second implication is that we are to do God's will. Right? If I do all of the effort to prove, to find what is God's will, then it makes sense that my next response is to do what is acceptable to the Lord. The reality is many times what is acceptable to the Lord is unacceptable to the world at large. And guess what this means we're to do? We're to do God's will anyway. You know, the reality is there is a very real possibility and in fact almost a probability that our lives as disciples of Jesus will not please everyone around us. You can almost guarantee if you are faithful to Jesus, there will be people in your life who do not appreciate your faithfulness to Jesus. They will not approve of the positions you take on hot-button cultural issues. They will not approve of the way you live your lives and spend your time. They will not approve of the things that you say or the things that you don't say. They will not approve of the actions you take. But... If our words please God, then that's what matters most. If our positions please God, then that's what matters most. If our actions please God, then that's what matters most. Make no mistake, if you live to please people, you will not please God. You cannot do both. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians that if I was a servant of man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Man will never, ever 
fully approve of God's will and God's want for your life. And if you're going to live to prove what is acceptable to the Lord and to do it, you have to be willing to be unacceptable to the world for them not to approve. Now, Paul does something genius here. Right? Proving what is acceptable to the Lord, that's great. That's, but it's, it's not very specific. But notice what he does now. He moves from a semi-generic, prove what is acceptable to the Lord, to a very specific way to please the Lord, what is the Lord's will. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness. Now, the unfruitful works of darkness would be what Paul covered in verses 3 through 6 that we've already talked about. Or it could be the works of the flesh from Galatians 5, 19 through 21. could be the acts of unrighteousness from 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. could be any sin listed in Scripture. The picture is disciples of Jesus are not to have any fellowship with sin. We're not to live in the unfruitful works of darkness. We are to live holy lives. But notice what he goes on to say. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. So rather than having fellowship with them, we are to reprove them. Now, reprove could also be translated as expose. And it carries with it the idea of revealing the unfruitful works of darkness to be sinful, revealing their hideous nature and their soul-destroying consequences. Now, that is always acceptable unto the Lord. It is acceptable for us to expose Sin as disgusting in God's eyes. Sin as soul-destroying, marring to our image, the image of God in our lives. That's acceptable to God. But, make no mistake, it is not acceptable to our culture. Our culture sees calling sin, sin, intolerant. And the new motto of our culture is, I will not tolerate intolerance. Culture tells us Christianity should be as broad and as accepting as possible. Everything should be okay because Jesus just wanted us to love one another. Now, cultural Christianity, it it does conform to this pattern of accepting sins. And the world loves it. They go to Ellen. They go to Dr. Phil. They go on Oprah. Oh, the world loves Those people. But make no mistake. The acceptance of the world does not mean the acceptance of God. God is not okay with a broad acceptance, accepting toleration of sin. And He never has been and He never will be. Because God not only calls us to have no fellowship with that sin, but He calls us to reprove it. So think about this. As a disciple of Jesus, it's not enough to just say, I'm not going to live in those things. Right? It's not enough to personally separate ourselves from this sin. That's, that's the first step, have no fellowship. But God calls on us to take another step, and the other step is not only not do it, but say, that is sin. That is hideous and abominable in the sight of God. That will destroy your soul. It will, it will send you to hell for all of eternity. That's what God calls us to do. That's how God calls us to live. Now that's, again, pleasing in God's sight. Certainly not pleasing in the world's sight. Now look at verse 12. Because lest some say I'm taking what Paul says too far. For it's a shame to even speak of these things which are done of them in secret. 
It's shameful to even speak of the unfruitful works of darkness. And he's not saying we shouldn't call them sin or say that they're soul-destroying or that they're hideous in nature. He's saying we shouldn't speak of them in positive ways. He's saying we shouldn't talk about sin in a way that communicates it's no big deal. I'll give you an example. Scripture often talks about our past life. And it says, what benefit have you in those things of which you're now ashamed? But I wonder, how many of us are actually ashamed of our past sin in life? And how many of us talk about our past lives before Christ and that sin as though that were the good old days? Oh boy, I sure miss going and doing and going and being and going. Woo, that was good times, but boy, I'm different now. That's the shameful way of speaking that Paul is talking about. It it would also be someone says, well, I'm this way and I I, I live like this. And for us to say, oh, well, you know, I, I just can't say can't say. I mean, I'm I'm not God. So, if you're happy with that way, you go be happy. That's shameful. The Bible says it's wrong. It's shameful to say anything else. Now, we don't have time, so I want to ask a question quick. It's not a main part of the sermon. Uh, It's more of a hanger, and I'm going to lob it out in the middle of you, and then I'm going to move on to something else. But here's the question. If it's shameful to speak in positive ways about sin, or if it's shameful to make light of sin, then what do you think it is to watch TV portrayals of unfruitful works of darkness where these sins are made out to be as good things or no big deal? Do you think think that's okay? Like, let's say, we would all say that like rape is bad, right? I mean, that would be pretty universal. Rape is bad. Or molestation or incest. Those are bad things, right? We would all say those are bad things. So what if there was a show? And that was the main thing. Rape, sex, incest. And it was shown in graphic detail. In gratuitous ways. If we were to prove what is acceptable to the Lord, would that be acceptable? But but what if there was a dragon involved in it? Would it be acceptable then? I wonder. If we prove what is acceptable to the Lord, what if what what, what if what we watch? What anyway, like I said, I don't have time to go on that, but just lobbing that out and we're moving on now. Now there is a specific way we're supposed to expose the unfruitful works of darkness. Look at verse thirteen. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light, for whatsoever doth make manifest is light. What is exposed is to be exposed by the light of Scripture. Scripture is called the, the light where to heed as a light which shines in the darkness. And that's a really important point. Something is not sin to be exposed just because we don't like it. Something is not sin to be exposed just because we think it's weird or different. Something is not sin to be exposed because it's not our preference or our conviction. Something is not sin to be exposed just because we don't understand it. Something is sin to be exposed because Scripture says it is a sin to be exposed. But at the same time, something is not acceptable to the Lord because we like it. And something is not acceptable to the Lord because someone we love does it. Something is not acceptable to the Lord because it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal in comparison to other things people are doing. 
something is not acceptable to the Lord because culture approves of it. Scripture says it's a sin. It's a sin. Period. And if it's a sin, we are to expose it as such. That is faithfulness to the Lord. That is acceptable to God. And we must stand and boldly proclaim the unfruitful works of darkness are sin. Absolutely and always without exception. We must proclaim they are hideous and disgusting and abominable in God's sight. And we must proclaim that they are soul destroying. And those who live in those things are not part of the kingdom of God or of Christ. And the wrath of God will come upon them. And we must proclaim that Jesus is the cure for those sins. It's not enough to just say sin is bad. We must also proclaim Jesus came to pay the penalty for that sin. Yes, that unfruitful work of darkness, it's sin. It is hideous. It is disgusting. It is abominable. But you can be taken out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. You can be saved from the wrath of come, the wrath to come, because Jesus has died on the cross. Because remember how it all began. For God, in Christ's sake, has forgiven you. We don't give half the gospel. That's a sin. Brings God's wrath. Have a good day. It's not helpful. We give the whole gospel. That is sin. It brings the wrath of God. Jesus can save you from that wrath. Jesus can pull you into the kingdom of God. But you must turn from your sin. You must believe on Jesus. You must choose this day whom you will serve. If we are not boldly proclaiming that, make no mistake, we are not being acceptable to the Lord. God is not pleased with our half-hearted proclamation. God is not pleased with our cowardice of what people will think. God expects and He demands and He deserves bold proclamation of His truth, of His gospel. Not just from me, but from each and every person who would say, I am a child of God. We must boldly proclaim the truth. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And I want to ask you first. In light of what we've talked about this morning. Are you certain? You're a part of the kingdom of God and of Christ. Are you certain? You've been delivered from the wrath to come. Or are you making an excuse? Or are you, have you believed a deception that says you can live in sin and for this reason or that, it will be okay? I urge you, I plead with you this morning, do not believe the lies that will damn your soul to hell for all eternity. 
this morning, in this time. Choose Jesus. There are no magic words to pray from your heart with what words you have. You call on Jesus to save you. You confess your sin. You express faith that He died for your sins and He rose again. And you ask Him to forgive you, to cleanse you, to save you. The Bible says those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And if that's your need this morning, you do that. You call on Jesus to save you. I also want to talk to those who would say, I I am a Christian. Let me ask you, are you asleep? there, There is no nebulous organization called the church that must wake up. There are people, individuals, you and I. Do you in your life love like Jesus loved? Do you live in holiness? Do you have a holy hatred of sin? Are you bold in the proclamation of truth and the gospel in your life? If not, then the need isn't for Northridge to wake up. It's for you to wake up, for me to wake up. That's why I plead with you. Wake up. People in our community need a church awake and alive. The lost around us need a church that's awake and alive. The lost in the world need a church in Gaiman that's awake and alive. I'm going to pray. If you need to call on Jesus today to save you, you do that as I pray. And if you need to call on Jesus to shake you and wake you, then you do that as I pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome. You are worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. And Lord, your word, it is a sword that cuts. And that cut hurts sometimes. But God, it's a sword that heals as well. So Father, today if some have been cut because of their need for Jesus, oh God, let them come to Jesus and be saved and let the other side of the sword heal that hurt. But God, if they hold back, if they push back, don't heal the hurt. Don't ease up on the conviction. Don't let up on pressing in upon them. Father, the harder they push back, I call upon you, I beg you to press all the harder upon them. Make them miserable until they turn to Christ and are saved. God, if we're here and we need to wake up, then shake us, wake us. Lord, the angel struck Peter on the side to wake him up. You do what it takes to wake us up. That we would not be a sleeping church. That we would not be lukewarm and half-hearted. But that we would be alive and we would be awake. And the the life of Christ would flow in this place and out into our community. That souls would be saved and lives would be changed. And captives would be set free and broken hearts would be healed. Wake us up to use us for your glory. Have your way, we ask in Christ's name.
for his sake. Amen.